Right, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please won't you turn with me either in your paper Bibles in the New Testament, the short little book of Colossians, about midway through the New Testament. Otherwise, turn on your digital device. There's a whole lot of free Bible apps out there and find the New Testament book of Colossians. And we're gonna be hanging out in the middle of, the, of chapter three or the beginning of chapter three. And what we've been doing as a church is going verse by verse through this book. And as much as it was written to a church, 2,000 years ago, we are discovering God's voice is as living and as active to us today. And as we've been going verse by verse, as we've been picking up theme after theme after theme, we have discovered God fathering us as a church. We have discovered that God is discipling us, that as we walk with Him and as we regularly participate in what He is saying to us, we are being transformed. And I'm so excited by some of the stories that are coming out about how God has been alive to you and you are coming alive to Him. Just in a brief summary, so that we're all on the same page, uh, the book opens up with just making much of Jesus, which is a Christianese way of just telling us the truth of who Jesus is. All right, just helping us see and understand His majesty, His sovereignty, His power, His bigness, and then specifically His power in salvation as He saves us, His victory on the cross and this new life that we walk in. And then what Paul does, this is the guy who wrote the book. He, he was a real person 2,000 years ago. He makes a sudden sharp turn where he starts speaking very practically, moving from this idea of Jesus being sovereign and Lord of all things. He starts talking about how that has to matter. If this is true, if Jesus is Lord of all things, that affects, and he starts off by talking about what we eat. He talks about what we drink, how we judge others and perceive others who make different decisions to us. He talks about what days we celebrate. He talks about our identity. He talks about angels. He talks about the fact that um, we need to be abandoning legalism, which is this kind of dead adherence to rules. He talks about abandoning licentiousness, licentiousness, which is me doing whatever I want, because if He is Lord, there is a third way of moving forward, and that is what we're talking about. And last week, we started reading a passage together, which says, if this is true, if Jesus is Lord, and if you are in Him, and if He is in you, we need to talk very practically about sin in our lives. And we realize this is going to be an ongoing conversation, just as leaders feeling the heavy breath of God upon us as a church, almost more so than usual. God is always faithful in His Word, but sensing that God is wanting us to stop and listen. God is wanting us to take notice as He speaks to us about a very real issue, which admittedly doesn't always get a lot of airtime in churches. So a couple of weekends ago, I got to do something which I absolutely love. And no, it was not eat a steak, um, although I do love that because you know me. Hey? So um, a couple of weekends ago, I got to spend a few days in Dahlstrom where I got to do some trout fishing. Absolutely love trout fishing. And, and I'm going to geek out on this a bit. Um, one of the many reasons why I love trout fishing is number one, just because of where these venues are. Trout love cold water. They love clean water. So we're thinking about the Eastern Free State Highlands. We're thinking about Mpumalanga, Dalstrom, that area. We're thinking about, uh, you know, the Natal Midlands. We're thinking about the Western Cape. We're thinking about the Eastern Cape Highlands where there is just natural, natural beauty. And there's usually a number of beautiful close towns, uh, towns close 
by. So my wife loves bee trout fishing because of where we go and my, my kids love it. Uh, so that's one of the reasons, just the natural beauty where you find yourself in. Uh, one of the other reasons why I love trout fishing is because there's a real art and science behind it. It, it, it really is. I mean, when people say to me, yeah, I know, I hate fishing. I always ask, well, what fishing have you done? Oh, you know, my uncle used to take me to some dam and then he just used to sit on the side of the dam and drink all day. And I'm like, well, that's not trout fishing, all right? And then I become a trout fishing evangelist because there's so much science and, and there's so much art in this. Uh, so that's the second reason. The third reason is that trout are just beautiful fish. So I, I don't know if this is bragging, but here's a picture of one I caught a couple of weekends ago. Um, I mean, look at that face. That's me so excited. Um, <laughs> and that is a beautiful hen trout, a female trout, and she is still swimming free as far as I know. Just beautiful surroundings, beautiful clean water. Um, you see, to deceive a fish like that, here's what you need to do. It's not just about throwing a ball of pup or something into the, into the water. You take a piece of hook, all right? You, you tie some feathers and some fur onto it, and that's not going to just deceive a trout. You see, you want to get the trout to actually believe it is eating a very real insect. All right, so this fly, where we call trout flies, have to deceive the trout. Apparently, flies deceive black Labradors too because um, <laughs> my dog went and ate a packet full of new flies and uh, miraculously passed all 10 of them. I don't know how that happened. The grace of God is on my life. But nonetheless, and her life actually, um, the point is this, a trout is gonna be cruising around eating, eating very natural food. And you want your fly to look like that and to act like that. So here's a picture. The next picture on the left is one of the child's favorite food, which is a mayfly. Um, when they become actual uh, adult flies, they only last for one day, uh, but they're actually born in the water. And on your left is a mayfly nymph. And on the right is one of the many flies designed to look like a mayfly nymph once it's underwater. All right, so the, you can't only have it look like a mayfly nymph. It has to swim like a mayfly nymph. So you've got to get your fly out in the trout's vision. He's got to be, he or she's got to be eating mayfly nymphs happily uh, and then eat yours because it thinks it's the real thing. But yours is a little bit different in the fact that not only is it artificial, it's got a hook in it. So when the trout's having breakfast and he comes across your mayfly nymph, you want him or her to go straight onto your fly, eat it, and then game on, which is good news for me and bad news for the trout. Um, most of the time, I release the trout to swim another day. Every now and again, I keep one for the pot, which is really bad news for the trout, all right? So I got thinking, isn't that sin? Isn't sin designed to appear like something we desire? Isn't sin in our lives, it's an artificial imitation of something better, of reality. It promises something, but never delivers. And yet there we are like human trouts, you know, going around for, uh, doing our business and then we see something that looks good. And then we hear warnings from God where He says, listen guys, I've got a perspective on this that you don't have. You see, what you don't know is that there are imitations out there that look as real and as good. And you're gonna happily walk up to these things and you're gonna engage in certain behaviors that promise happiness, that promise joy, but are gonna to fail to deliver. And here's what you don't know, is what you don't know is not only is that artificial, but there's a hook in it. And that has been placed very strategically in your life to hook you, there's a hook, there's a line, there's an angler who wants to lead you to death. 
And so when God speaks to us about sin in our lives, He's not trying, as I said last week, to be like that cop who comes and shuts down the party just because we're having too much fun. He's saying, I know what this sin does. I know the nature of the deception. I know the nature of the hook and the bob. I know that it goes one way. And if you trust me, and if you follow my wisdom, you can avoid these things and you can live in my freedom and you can be like the trout who just carries on living day after day after day, right? And that is what God is speaking to us at the moment as He deals with our sin. So last week we read a passage that is inviting us to take drastic action against our sin. And we're going to stay on this passage as we really believe there's like a part two in this. And, and I actually believe, in fact, I can promise you there's going to be a part three in this. So that might mean even more open chairs next week. But uh, we are also trusting that God is inviting us into this new life and that we are actually wanting to participate with Him in this. Uh, so we're going to read the same verses that we read last week um, and just kind of double up on some of what we did last week and then go into some new te territory in a few minutes' time. So Let's read together. Daryl already read some of it, but let's read Colossians chapter three. And I'm gonna read verse one and then jump to verse five. So we started on verse one last week where it says this. Since then you've been raised with Christ. In other words, Paul is assuming this is now your new starting point. This is not about how to become a Christian. This is assuming now that you are a Christian, now that you are in Christ, now that His life is in you and your life is in Him, now let's talk about how to deal with our sin. And it says this, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. So last week we spoke about the idea that we need new desires in our life. And if we don't have our desires transformed, what's gonna happen is, is we're gonna have a bit of a list of things that we feel like God is saying to us, cut this stuff out. And then there's gonna be a list of things where God is saying, and, and swap that list for this list. It's kind of, these are the kinds of things that are gonna lead you towards righteousness and life. And if our desires are not changed, we're gonna take an honest look at the first list and saying, but I like that list. I like sin. I like doing those things. And these things, things of righteousness, are not gonna feel attractive to us. They're not gonna feel like life. And for that reason, we will stay trapped in our sin because we are being deceived by the imitative nature of it. But if our desires get transformed, when you start realizing that, man, God is good. God is a perfect father. He's leading me towards life. This is not just stop this, do this. This is I'm leading you to freedom. I want you to experience life in me. I want you to experience greatest and deepest joy. And when we allow our desires to be transformed, that's always gonna be the starting point. Now let's read from verse five. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And he lists a whole bunch of sins. Some of them are, are obvious and some of them are less obvious in our lives. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. So when you stop there, you see this part of, of the passage is assuming that there is a BC, a before Christ, and an AD in our lives. And that's gonna show itself not in just the fact that I go to church twice a year, but there's a change in my behavior. 
There's an actual discarding of all, of old ways. Look at what I've underlined there. You used to walk in these ways. In the life you once lived, rid yourselves. The first words that I, I read there were put to death, taken off your old self. Again, these are assumptions. Paul is saying, I am assuming, I'm not telling you to do it, I'm assuming you're doing it. If we have the love of God in our lives, if we've experienced grace in Jesus Christ, Paul's assuming we're doing these things. And then finally, verse 10, um, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with his practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. We realize not only do we have to uh, embrace new desires and discard old ways, we have to implement, actively implement new behaviors that lead us towards grace, that lead us to where God is actually working. This verse tells us that God is renewing us in knowledge. That's where He is working. And therefore, we need to participate with Him. Now, I kind of acknowledged freely last week that if you're sitting there, you're like, Steve, that sounds like a whole lot of hard work. And I said, we're gonna talk more about that this week. We're sitting there saying, I thought becoming a Christian just meant that I had to come to church a few times and God is gonna magically zap me into heaven. I thought the Christian life was meant everything is gonna be easy. I thought becoming made into the image of Jesus, which is one of the ways that God transforms us, I thought that was just gonna happen automatically. And now Stephen, you're saying, no, there's all these powerful verbs, killing, putting off, the life that you used to live and putting on new things. Wow, I never signed up for that. And here we start realizing that when it comes to our transformation, not our salvation, when it comes to our salvation, as we sang this morning, it is finished. Christ has done it, 100% of the work. But when it comes to our transformation, there's this incredible mystery, this mysterious participation between what God does and what I do. And if you want to understand that, I'm a logical person, at least I try and be, I want to understand things. And the more I apply my mind, the more confused I get. I don't know, and we're gonna look at a number of verses. Where does God's work start and where does my work start and stop? I don't, I don't really understand it. But I wanna give you a bit of insight into this, but we need to understand why God works in this way. Uh, on the way to school the other day, my kids say to me, Dad, is, is Frankenstein real? So I said, no, 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 Frankenstein's not real. Okay, okay, is Einstein real? No, Einstein is very real. So then, so, so then we started talking about Einstein and just what a bright guy he was. So my kids go, oh, Dad, I, I really wish we could eat some food that could make us that clever, right? And isn't that what we want? The quick fix. Just take this pill, take this juice, eat this thing, and you are gonna be superhuman, all right? And yet when we understand that, well, there is food, and what we eat matters. And what we eat is either gonna work us towards health or away from health. And is gonna either help us be strong and fit mentally and emotionally and physically, or it's gonna work against that. So we do have to eat, but we're talking about a long process of training and developing. There's nothing that we can take that is just gonna automatically make us clever or automatically make us strong and fit. We are invited into a process of developing things within us that are able to engage well in life. And in the same way, we want this magic pill. God just, you know, isn't there some food I can eat? Isn't there some pill I can take? Isn't there some grace juice I can drink that's gonna make me like Jesus, right? We want the quick fix. 
And what God is wanting to do in you, He, he doesn't just create this world for you to be an inactive participant. In fact, we can go to Genesis chapter one and two. This is before sin enters the world. And in Genesis chapter one and two, we don't see God creating this garden for Adam and Eve to have cocktails all day. In fact, from the word go, he puts them to work. God says, as image bearers, as ones who ought to live and act in such a way that people look at me, I am calling you to reign. I'm calling you to govern in creation. I'm calling you to work and to create. I'm calling you to manage. I'm calling you to steward. I'm calling you to participate with me in bringing life out of chaos. This was before sin. And in the same way, God is saying, I don't want to just come and zap you when it comes to what I want in your life. I'm inviting you into an active participation with what I am doing. I'm wanting to develop in you this image of God from Genesis 1 and 2. I'm wanting you to develop the spiritual and mental and even physical muscles of what it means to participate with God in reigning and ruling, bringing beauty out of darkness, bringing order out of chaos. And somehow God is doing that and we're called to participate in that, which is why one of the many things God wants to grow in you is this little thing called self-control. He doesn't want you to be like a little robot that he is controlling all the time. And yet somehow our self-control is at his highest when we are being mastered by him. Somehow even in self-control, it is my submission to him that enables me to do that but it takes great effort. So here are some verses that are just gonna help us um, become convinced of how God works in this way. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 10, he says these words. He says, I worked harder than all of them. He's talking about how this particular church was comparing him to the other apostles, people like Peter. And he says, I've worked harder than all of those apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So Paul says, in order for me to plant churches, in order for my character to grow and develop, in order for me to exercise leadership and love, in order for me to do what I'm doing, man, I, I got up early and I went to bed late. I went to bed dog tired. I, I sweated and I bled for these things. But when I look back, in spite of this incredible effort that I put into the story, I realized it wasn't me. It is God's grace. It is what he supplies. It was what he does that he's actually standing there. So Stephen, how does it work? Could Paul have sat on his backside doing nothing? Somehow, if Paul did that, he wouldn't have seen the fruits of his labor. There's another verse. Philippians chapter two, verses 12 to 13, that says this. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is something you are called to do. In fact, commanded to do. Now, when you say work it out, it's not like work out a, a math problem. It's not calling you to figure out a, 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 you know, a 10 mark essay on your salvation. No, no, God has put salvation in you, in you, you need to work it out. All right, that which is true of who you are now, you need to make explicit to the world in how you live. You need to work out what was in you with fear and trembling, which is just another way of saying with a high reverence of who God is, with a high sense of the salvation and this precious gift that you have been given. That's something you do. 
But let's see the second part of this verse. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So is it my job or is it God's job? Yes and yes. God is doing something in you. He has saved you 100% his job. Now he's wanting to not just bless you, but transform you. And somehow he is doing it and you get to actively participate with him. And by the way, as I said last, last week, there's no neutral gear in this. If you are inactive in this, you are dead weight in this whole process and that is only leading one way. You're a non-participant in your transformation, which means you're not engaging in what God is doing. So my first question is this, how active, and I ended off last week, how active on a scale of one to 10 have you been in participating with God in your life, in your transformation? How active have you been? I'm not gonna ask you to write it down. I'm not gonna ask you to email me and tell me your little secret. Just between you and God, how active have you been? Because God is working, but he is inviting us to be part of this. Uh, N.T. Wright is, is a British theologian. Um, when he speaks, it just like, it like oozes intelligence and confidence. It's crazy. He's one of those guys that when you read, you literally need a nap after reading two pages. Um, he's quite dense in his theology. But he, he wrote a book, less theological, more practical, called After You Believe. He's saying, how is our character transformed once I've come to faith, before I go and be with Jesus, what happens in between? And how does my character be transformed? And one of the metaphors he uses, he says, it's kind of like learning a language. Now, some of you have had to learn a bit of Afrikaans or, or Zulu or English if you are Afrikaans. And um, I mean, I had to learn a bit of Greek and Hebrew in my early 20s when I was studying theology. And it's just, it, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to make your mouth do things that our South African languages do because these are different languages. All right, and, and to make your mouth make certain sounds and to get your tongue wrapped around these words and, and it really feels artificial as you say these words. And now you've got to string them up into a sentence and you've got to somehow sound normal. But when it comes to learning a language, here's what starts to happen. Eventually, it does start to feel more and more natural until you can eventually get to the point where people don't even know this is not your mother tongue. That is how natural it is for you. And in the same way, Paul is saying that as we put on the new self, as we put on these new behaviors, behaviors that do not come naturally to us, it is gonna feel awkward. If you're naturally an angry person and you are trying to put on self-control, at first it is gonna be like, what? this doesn't fit. It's like a square peg in a round hole. It's just like not getting this right. Then you're gonna try again. You're gonna try again. And it's going to feel cumbersome, but, but eventually it's going to feel more natural until it is actually natural for you. Dr. Henry Cloud, who's a Christian psychologist, he says, every single time we stay away from anger in our lives, if anger is your issue, you are literally creating new pathways in your brain for you to act in new ways. So what we've realized in terms of this transformation We've realized that there's two roots that don't work. We've spoken about both of them already. The, 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 the root of blindly and in a dead way adhering to a list of rules, that doesn't work because externally you may uphold all those rules, but internally your heart hasn't changed. So that doesn't work. That's legalism. On the, on the other hand, license doesn't work. License kind of says, just be yourself, be authentic. 
And we realize that if we are authentic, if we do try and be ourselves, we land up just messing things up. So somehow being authentic doesn't work and following a bunch of rules doesn't work. So how do we go forward? And this is the way N.T. Wright describes this transformation. He says this, The way this works out is that it produces, through the work of the Holy Spirit, a transformation of character. This transformation will mean that we do indeed keep the rules, though not out of a sense of externally imposed duty, but out of the character that has been formed within us. And it will also mean that we do indeed follow our hearts and live authentically, but only when with that transformed character fully operative, the hard work up front bears fruit in spontaneous decisions and actions that reflect what has already been formed deep within us. Now that is a very dense paragraph. I've tried to kind of highlight the way we need to be thinking about this. Basically he's saying, if you want to get to the point where your life is growing in righteousness, where you do land up living in the way that God is saying, here are boundaries in your life. Stay away from those, keeping the rules. But you're not doing it because I have to, because Steve says I must. You're not doing this with his fat bottom lip. On the other hand, we actually become new creations. We become this new identity. So when we live out this new identity, we are being authentic. We are being true to ourselves. But something needs to happen up front. And that is this intensive participation with the Holy Spirit whereby we put off and we put on. We put off and we put on. And that is the work in conjunction with God's work in your life that is gonna transform your inner life, your character, and bring you into this new reality. Does that make sense? So as Christians, this is what we are invited into. So, so as we carry on talking about killing sin. I want to talk briefly about two lies that you may be at some level vocalizing in your mind right now that is actually going to stop you from taking one step forward. There are many more lies. I've got time for two. And the first lie that you might be believing right now in your mind is this. This is just who I am. I was born this way. I'm going to stay with anger. I, I, I was born an angry person. All right? Uh, and, and I've always struggled with anger. So because this is who I am, because this is such a part of who I am, there's no way I can let it go. So it's just going to stay with me to the end of my days. And I want to humbly remind you of the gospel, which says, you're wrong. If you are a Christian, that is not who you are anymore. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you are no longer defined by your flesh. You are no longer defined by your genetics. That is no longer who you are. Who you are is you are in Christ. You are a son, you are a daughter, you are a new creation. That is who you are. I think that is one of the main reasons why the first two words of the Lord's Prayer is our Father. So that every time we pray, we are reminded, I'm not this, I'm not my sin, I'm not my failures, I am a son in my case, or I'm a daughter of a loving, good and perfect father. Now, that doesn't mean you automatically stop sinning, but when you sin, you sin as one who is a child. 
And yes, there may be certain sins in your life that you need to wrestle with a bit harder than others. And there are other sins in your life that pretty much come easy to you when it comes to overcoming them. And then when it comes to the unique bouquet of sins in my life, maybe the sins I struggle with come pretty naturally to you in terms of getting over them and vice versa. And so yes, there are still certain realities, but the point is this, that reality is not my identity. For me, what it's meant is every time I pray, I'm half praying and half preaching the gospel to myself. Stephen, you are no longer that. You are now this. My father. Lord, I'm so grateful I get to come into your presence as a, as a son. Today, Lord, I'm feeling good and I thank you. No, today, Lord, I'm not feeling good. But I thank you I'm not defined by that failure. And it's the only way that I know in prayer, in the Spirit, to get it out of my thick skull into my heart. The second lie you may be telling, oh, wait, I want to give you this verse as well. I love how this next verse describes what a righteous person looks like. It's not a person who never falls. A righteous person is this, Proverbs 24, 16. For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. Because that's who we are. Because Jesus rose and his life is in me and I am in his. The other day we took our kids ice skating. For the first time in a very long time, I hit the ice hard. Like, I mean, talking about my shoulder is still sore about six weeks later because of how hard, and I'm carrying about 20 kilograms more than the last time I fell hard. All right, so, you know, good old laugh. Ah, you know, look what I did. Now imagine I carried on going and I hit the ice hard again, second time. And got up, maybe a little bit more sore, a little bit more tentative. Um, imagine I hit the ice the third time. I mean, by the fourth, fifth time, somebody is going to say, stay off the ice, right? This is not your strong place. And yet the righteous person falls, but gets up. We call this falling forward. Falls again, gets up. Because we live in new life, we live in resurrection life. So that's the first lie. The second lie is a lot more subtle and enticing, and it is this. Everything will be okay if I just stop this sin. So for some of us, some form of heaven on earth looks like your life as it is now minus a certain sin in your life. So for some of you, the first one that comes to mind is maybe lust or, or viewing pornography or fantasizing. For some of you, it is your anger. For some of you, it is your tongue. And you're like, oh Lord, if only you could deal with this sin in my life. And in your imagination, the Christian life looks like your life as it is now, minus that one sin. Oh, it'll be so good if I can just have that sin taken out of my life. I wonder how many say to you this morning, you're wrong. And the reason you're wrong is because your vision is way too small. Way too small. You see, God, while He actively wants to deal with sin in your life and He actively dealt with the penalty of sin in Jesus and He has given you Himself to live and walk with you in this, what He wants for you is not just to get rid of that sin. He wants so much more for you. He wants you to be fully alive to Him. He wants every part of your life. And here's what sin does. God says, I want access into that part of your life and there's sin in the way. So He says, well, let's deal with that. So I can get in there. Oh, and there's another part of your life and I want to be fully alive to you and you to me, but there's sin in the way. So let's deal with it. 
Not so that you can simply be rid of sin in your life, but that you can be fully alive to Him, fully engaging His life, fully engaging His power, fully engaging all He has for you. Kind of like the only metaphor I could come up with was a child who's kind of like, oh, I can't wait to get rid of these training wheels on my bicycle. Oh, why do I want to get rid of the training wheels? Oh, I want to see the world. Okay, well, let's get rid of the training wheels. Learn how to ride. Oh, let's go see the world. Go out of the driveway, come back in. Job done. Like, listen, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't just stop with going out the driveway. There's a whole world to see. There's a whole city to see. Wait till you see the Drakensberg. Wait till you get a job and you can buy a car and you can drive somewhere else. Wait till you see the beautiful West Coast. Wait till you see the North Coast on our Eastern side. Wait till you see the Eastern Cape Highlands. And that's just one country, right? There's so much more for you than simply getting rid of training wheels. And that is what God is wanting to offer us. And therefore, our vision has to be more than just dealing with the sin. And man, we need to deal with this seriously. And God is wanting to deal with it seriously. But the vision is, man, we're going this way. And there are things that are standing in the way. So let's deal with them so that you can get there and walk in paths of life. So the word the Bible uses for this process is repentance. It's not a word that we really use outside of church. Repentance for many people in the church world has become synonymous with just feeling a little bit bad about our sin. Whereas when we fully understand, we're going to spend some time on this word now and we are wrapping things up. Repentance is so much more than just feeling a little bit bad about what I've done that is naughty. Repentance involves all of these things we've spoken about. It involves embracing new desires. It involves embracing new ways of thinking. I've already given you so many new ways of thinking this morning. Repentance involves that. Repentance involves actively putting off, actively putting on, actively embracing the path of life. All of that is encapsulated by that one word, repentance. So here's a verse that is going to really bring this to light for us where Paul is writing to another church, 2 Corinthians 7 verses 10, and he says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets, but worldly sorrow brings death. Can you see the logic there? There's two types of sorrow that lead in two very different directions. Both starting points are you feeling bad about your sin. One path leads you to repentance, which is another way of saying real change, which leads to the paths of life. The other kind of sorrow, which may initially feel exactly the same, leads towards death and leads away from life. So my point is this, in terms of God inviting us to participate with him in killing sin in our lives. Some of you may have started feeling a little bit bad about your sin. And and I want to kind of stop you there and say, yes, that's a good starting point, but be very careful. That's not enough. Because only one of those paths leads to repentance, real change and life. So how do we know the difference? Well, the first difference is actually very obvious. The first difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, godly sorrow always leads to genuine change. See, some of us feel bad about our sin, but there's no change. 
and then we feel bad about our sin again and there's no change again. And then we feel bad about our sin again and there's no change, no change and no change. And the reason why that eventually leads to death is because eventually the Bible says we become desensitized to our sin. We stop even caring. We stop even feeling bad about it. And because we fully embrace the path of death, that is where we are led towards. So if there is no real change, you may have felt bad for a few seconds, but that has been worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads towards real change and leads towards the paths of life. So that's the first difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. I want you to just talk about one more, talking about the source of the sorrow. Worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow leading to death, godly sorrow leading to change and life. There is that adjective, godly and worldly. Let me try and help you understand that. Worldly sorrow hates the consequences. Godly sorrow hates the sin. Worldly sorrow just feels bad because I got caught again. Worldly sorrow feels bad because there are some consequences in my life. And, oh man, man life is hard. Or, or, you know, my kids aren't happy with me right now. Or my wife and my husband's not happy with me right now. Or, or, you know, I've got this little bit of a difficulty with people at work. And, and that's not fun. So for that reason, I feel bad. Godly sorrow hates the source of it. Godly sorrow hates the sin. So that's the first difference. The second difference is worldly sorrow condemns, godly sorrow convicts. For some of us, the sorrow is, is almost too light. It doesn't bring about change. For some of us, the sorrow that it brings into our life is so heavy and so condemning that you land up hating yourself rather than hating the sin. And that is not from God. Where you start believing something along these lines, I am no longer worthy of. It is no longer possible for God to truly love me because I am a mess. I am a sinner. I am defined by my sin. That is worldly sorrow that leads one way because it causes us to stop believing the gospel. As godly sorrow is the gentle but powerful voice of the Holy Spirit saying, here's what bringing death in your life. You may know it, you may not even know it. But with that gentle voice is an invitation to life. And we sense this loving Father gently speaking to us about something that is bringing death in my life. But he's saying, See, Steve, doesn't stop and start there. Just remember the cross. Remember that this has been paid for in Jesus. And now remember that, man, if you partner with me, we're going to lead you towards life and more. And that is conviction. The third difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is more concerned with worldly loss. Godly sorrow is more concerned with true righteousness. See, godly sorrow is upset because, ah, oh, I look bad in people's eyes. I lost the promotion. I lost the relationship. And they could be genuine losses. But I feel bad because I lost those things Whereas godly sorrow is concerned, man, I, I want to go hard after Jesus. I want to follow him. I want to be able to say to my kids, my wife, my husband, my friends, follow me as I follow Jesus. My life is an actual example. 
I hunger and I thirst for righteousness. And when things get in the way, man, we deal with it as godly sorrow. And as we wrap up, to see what godly sorrow actually produces in our lives, let's read towards the end of that verse where it says this. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. That is the product of godly sorrow that leads to true change, that leads to life. So as we look at those bolded words on the screen, in light of some of the sin that God has been speaking to you about, do those words ring true? Do you just feel bad because someone's upset with you? Do you just feel bad because you were caught? Or are you like, Lord, Lord, just do whatever you need to do in my life because I want to follow hard after you. Man, and and when you, Lord, when you convict me in love because I am a child, I do not lose my childness. I do not lose my position in your family. But because you want to transform me, I want to participate with you. Man, Lord, when you do speak to me about these things, here's what gets developed in me. Earnestness. I sincerely want to deal with these things in my life. Eagerness. I can't wait to move forward with you, God. Indignation. I can't believe it. I hate sin. I hate what this is doing. What alarm. What longing. Not just to be free of sin, but to be walking in freedom. What concern. What readiness to see things change. And so as we pray, where are we for time? A few minutes left. As we pray, I've got no doubt that God has been highlighting certain things in your life. Again, this is the voice of a loving father who wants to lead you towards greater freedom and greater life. And he wants to invite you to be a non-passive participant in this. And it may involve... I have worked harder than all the other people in my life group, but yet not I, but the grace of God that is in me. I want you to look at the words on the screen in relation to your particular sin. And I want you to remind you, you are not that sin. Jesus became that sin on your behalf. And God punished that sin in your place, in Jesus, so that you can be called a child of the God who is defined by being love. That is who you are. When you sin, you're not sinning against the law. You are sinning against love. It's reminding you who you are. That's who you are. Reminding you again. That's who you are in Christ. But now, let's talk about our transformation. The other beauty of the gospel is this. God doesn't say, well, now I've saved you. I'm going to leave you alone. He jumps in there with us. Jesus is the one who says, man, I have dealt with that sin. I've got the t-shirt and I'm going to walk with 
you. I'm not going to say, sort yourself out and then I will come into your life. I, I want to invite you this morning in relation to some of the sin that God has highlighted to you to pray a prayer along these lines. God, I invite you into this space. I am struggling with dot, 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 dot. You have highlighted A, B, and C to me. And your word says that you're active there. Your word says that you're breathing new life into my new creation self. And I want to participate with you. And I'm going to ask God, as you pray that prayer, to produce these words in you, earnestness, eagerness, indignation, alarm, longing, concern, and readiness, so that you start working, walking towards life. Just before I do that, I had an incredibly strong sense this morning as I woke up that there is one particular sin, I'm not going to ask anyone to raise their hands, but there is one particular sin that God is wanting to work with in a particularly acute way this morning. And that is the sin of anger. Now, you may have a pile of genuine reasons why you feel angry. And that maybe helps you understand your context and helps you understand some of your personality and your responses. But anger, it still becomes a platform for us to act out of our brokenness, out of our sinfulness. And I believe out of the many things that God wants to speak to us about this morning, in particular, He wants us to come face to face with our anger. So let's pray. Father, I'm asking that your Holy Spirit's voice is what is loudest right now. The voice of the enemy and the voice of self is quiet. That we hear the conviction of your spirit and the invitation to life and freedom. And Lord, I want to invite you in to these places where we are defined by struggle, messiness, pain, and difficulty, passivity. where we even doubt our salvation. And Jesus, thank you that just as you took our sin on in the cross, so you boldly embrace us in our sin. Guys, just some prayer of God, I invite you into this place. I've done trying to fix myself. I'm not defined by the sin. God, this is where you're working and I want to work with you. And Lord, at the same time, I I want to just step out here a bit and say, Lord, would you speak to us if our wrestling is particularly with our anger, our unrighteous anger, where we act sinfully in our anger. Lord God, there may be tragic reasons why we are still angry. And we've justified that. We've said to ourselves, that's who I am. I cannot change. And if that's you this morning, to lesser and greater degrees, just acknowledge the truth of that reality to God right now. Lord, I'm angry. This is something that continuously wrecks my relationships. 
And Lord, I invite you into that place. We invite your power, Holy Spirit, into our lives. And we choose, we choose the path, as much as we feel sorrow right now, we choose the path of change and life. We choose that, church. We actively choose that. I choose to stop the habit of feeling bad and coming to you with no intent of transformation. And Lord, I might be that righteous man who falls seven times and gets up again and everyone else looks at me, what an idiot. But Lord God, I hunger and I thirst for righteousness. And so I choose repentance. And church, as hard as, as it is, I want to leave you there so that you can go with God in this week. I strongly, we're going to talk more practically about this next week. I strongly encourage you to have a coffee with someone who you can share whatever God is speaking to you about right now. You can talk about it with them. But they remind you of your identity in Christ and they pray with you. They just hear you out. Choose the path of change. So Holy Spirit, we thank you that you do not leave us alone. You give us power. And we're gonna work, but we're gonna work with you. And we're gonna see it was actually your grace that changed us. And Father God, we recognize this is an over-ended prayer. We never wanna say amen to this prayer. We just wanna continually invite us working in our lives. And so Lord, let it be. Continue working in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name.